Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Jose has learned to do a radio voice. What's his radio voice? He'll say, Jotty, Jotty. <laughs> Come in. <laughs> He's ready to podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Sarah Cliff is here with me in the studio. Ezra Klein has uh, departed for California. Absconded. And is uh, is in the studio in Berkeley, California. It's a whole new Weeds format. So, okay. What I want to talk about today is Donald Trump's new plan for healthcare that he's working on. He's been talking about it on the trail the past couple of days. It's going to protect people with pre-existing health conditions. Uh, Sarah, you're a healthcare journalist. You've been reporting on this. What's the plan? How does it work? Oh, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Matt, but I don't think there's a plan. So there's no plan. <laughs> Wait, what? But he said um, there's a plan. So this all gives me flashbacks to this very specific moment at the beginning of 2016. And this was right before Donald Trump was—what took office. He'd been elected. He hadn't taken office yet. beginning of 2017. Begin- yes, that's the one. Yes. Beginning of 20—sorry, it all blends together. Beginning of 2017, early January, I'm on the Capitol with a bunch of reporters. And the Washington Post posts this article where Donald Trump, soon to be— inaugurated, says, I've got a plan. Like, it's going to cover everybody, and it's going to have lower premiums, and it's going to be great. And then, like, this whole Capitol Hill press corps is like a Twitter, like, oh, gosh, is there, like, there's a plan. Like, he's working on a plan. This plan is coming. But there's no plan. Like, there there was not a plan then. And this is exactly the same thing happening over and over again. And right now, it really centers on pre-existing conditions, we've been seeing a lot of Republican candidates really led by Trump and then, you know, seeing some folks running for senator, running for House, talking about how they have these plans to protect pre-existing conditions. And then, you know, there's a few options. One, there is maybe there's a secret plan, but that's not super useful to us because it does not exist. Or two, there just isn't a plan. And, and that has been like the story of the past year of Trump and healthcare. And I it's even worse than that. It's not just that the Trump administration doesn't have a plan to protect people with pre-existing conditions. They are currently supporting a lawsuit that would get rid of protections for pre-existing conditions. It's yeah, an I opposite mean, situation. I should say, I don't think it really is possible that there's a secret plan because they're taking a lot of flack for this in the campaign trail, right? The reason they are spending, like, literally millions of dollars are being spent right now on advertising campaigns in which Republican candidates are asserting that they have a plan to protect patients with preexisting conditions. Were there such a plan, a very small incremental investment on top of the millions of dollars in television ads would be to, like, release the plan. Yes. But they're not doing that because there isn't a plan. 
So I think there are a couple of things here, but but one thing I want to press on that, that Sarah's saying, and it's in her great piece on Republican stunning hypocrisy on pre-existing conditions, is that there are different kinds of lying and exaggerating and spinning in American politics. But something you're seeing a lot recently, uh, particularly under Donald Trump, is what I would call directional lying. It's often the case that a politician will come out and will say, you know, my plan for health care, I remember Obama in 2008, said my plan for health care, it'll bring the average family's premiums down by $2,500, if I'm remembering this correctly. Right. Yes. And, you know, that was based, I would say, on some optimistic calculations by David Cutler and others about, you know, if you added up some things and, you you know, you looked at it this way, and, like, they were hoping that would happen. And, you know, people can argue whether or not that happened, but I would say, in general, Obamacare did not bring down the average family's premium by $2,500. But what they were saying the plan was going to do, the the pieces of the plan that that were involved there were were more or less correct. I mean, it was a selling of their plan, but it it was functionally their plan. The thing they were selling, you know, and the theories under which they were selling it and the ways in which they hoped to save money, that was all pretty much true. Um, Although it didn't have an individual mandate at that time. But this is not like <laughs> this is like we're going to go left and we're actually going to go right. This is lying in the directional sense where you tell people you're going to do one thing and you're not just not going to do that thing or you're not going to only halfway do that thing. You are doing the opposite of that thing. You are saying we're going to protect people with pre-existing conditions and you are going to take away protections for people with pre-existing conditions. This kind of lying is pretty uh, – I mean it's not new but it, but it is scary uh, in the sense of – there's a way American politics is meant to work, a way any political system is meant to work, which is that voters have roughly accurate information about what the political parties want to do. And they can make decisions about what's going to happen and then thus decisions about who they should support. And in general, in American politics, and I say really in general here, I'm not saying it works all the time, but it often works, right? Like I think voters know that Republicans want to cut taxes on rich people and that Democrats want to raise taxes on rich people. And like, like maybe they don't know like a lot about the debate about capital gains taxation or this or that, but but they have a generalized idea. I think probably voters know what's going on here, but for the people who are ensconced in like Republican Party information loops and given the sort of other side of this, which is how much effort the Republicans have put into delegitimizing the media as an information source. So people only listen to like Fox News and Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Like the idea is to really confuse them. The idea is to really pull the wool over their eyes to tell them that Donald Trump supports something he doesn't support. The Republicans in Congress support something they don't support and have them vote for Republicans on uh, completely uh, false grounds. I think that matters a lot for two reasons. One is when you look at polling around healthcare in this election, the most important healthcare issue to people right now is protections for pre-existing conditions. So th- this is something people are caring about. If you look at Kaiser Family Foundation, their monthly poll, this shows up as the top issue. And like I understand why Republicans are doing this. The protection on pre-existing conditions is the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act. So getting rid of those protections is a very unpopular policy position. Unfortunately, it, it is, in fact, the policy position that a lot of Republicans hold right now, kind of ranging from those who support this lawsuit to get rid of them to those who supported the American Health Care Act, the House repeal bill, which would have weakened protections for pre-existing conditions but not gotten rid of them. 
entirely. Um, it, it is not a popular policy position to hold to, you know, bring back discrimination against the sick. So, so can I ask you something about this, Sarah? Yeah. So Republicans clearly know protecting people with pre-existing conditions is popular. I mean, we've not said it yet, but Donald Trump sent out this tweet that, like, uh, I, I wish I had the wording in front of me, but it was something like, you know, Republicans will always support people mm-hmm. with pre-existing conditions. Why don't they? Why in their policy architecture here can't they or don't they just add in a genuine planks, put, you know, putting these protections in place and they can just do all the other things they want to do, but, you know, leave the people with pre-existing conditions over to one side so they're not constantly being hit with this club? Yeah. So, you know, you see some nods toward that. So I think what's happening in like the policy space is the idea of covering people with Pre-existing conditions is in tension with other policy goals that Republicans have, which is namely deregulating the insurance market and giving people access to cheaper, you know, less um, benefit-rich plans. The idea being, you know, people should have a wide array of choices. If I just want to buy a cheap insurance plan that doesn't cover much and pay a low premium, like that should be my right as a healthcare consumer. The problem is that if your two goals are protecting people with pre-existing conditions and offering people cheap health insurance, you know, with skimpier benefits, it's really hard to do those two things in tandem. You know, you, you do see things come up like high-risk pools, for example. So, like, put the people with pre-existing conditions somewhere else in some kind of government-subsidized risk pool. So then you can have your insurance market for the healthy people and, like, a risk pool for the sick people. Those often have ended up underfunded. Um, you end up with people with really serious pre-existing conditions ending up there, but someone who has, like— I don't know, like run-of-the-mill arthritis, you know, doesn't actually qualify for the for the pool or something like that. So I think what's going on is there's this tension between this policy goal that I, it seems like Republicans are prizing above all else of deregulating the insurance market, bringing down premiums, giving people more choice, that they're prizing that as kind of policy goal number one. And that just makes it really, really hard to guarantee health insurance to people who are sicker. Wait, so Trump's actual tweet, which I I think is worth quoting in full because it's – there's actually more dishonesty going on here than I think we have allowed. What what he said was Republicans will totally protect people with preexisting conditions, comma. Democrats will not, exclamation point, vote Republican. And now the story of this, right, is the Republican Party was founded in the 1850s and in its first 160 years of existence – never passed any legislation to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Then in the year 2010, the Democratic Party wrote a bill that would protect people with pre-existing conditions. The Republican Party uniformly voted against that bill. Then they voted many times, like dozens of times when Barack Obama was president to eliminate those pre-existing conditions. Then Donald Trump won the election. Then the House voted again twice, I believe, to eliminate those pre-existing conditions. Uh, The Senate, likewise, most Republican senators signed on for a bill that would do that, nearly all of them. And then all the Republican attorneys general and the Trump White House signed on to a lawsuit. So it is unequivocal for hundreds of years. The Republican Party has never, they have never once taken an affirmative step to ensure protections for people with pre-existing conditions. They have many times tried to take them away. And Trump is now not only saying that Republicans hold the Democrats' position, but that Democrats hold the opposite 
of their own position. Well, and you see that in some of the kind of state level and like district level advertising that we're seeing now right. too with these claims that I'm the candidate who's going to protect pre-existing conditions, my opponent. Like um, Josh Howley, I don't right. know if you know it's still the same. Howley the, in the Missouri. Senate, yeah, the Senate candidate in Missouri. The He's, attorney general in Missouri who, yes, who, who has signed yes. multiple times onto lawsuits. Yes, and who is not, who, who at any point, so th- he has been running these ads, you know, about how important it is. His kid has a pre-existing condition. He wants to make sure that kid has access to health insurance. He's so committed to protecting people with pre-existing conditions. He is a party to the lawsuit that is asking a federal court to eliminate those protections. And he has been asked about reporters, you know, do you want to pull off of this lawsuit? And no, like he is still on this lawsuit today. But I want to circle back about like why all of this matters because I think voters are listening. And I think people who are looking at who they're going to vote for to the issue, you know, to the idea you're raising, Ezra, that, you know, it's really very different from the situations we have on issues like immigration, um, tax, economic policy, where both parties are like, okay with like the position that generally people think that they have. When I've done reporting with Obamacare enrollees who voted for Trump, one of my first questions to them would always be like, well, why did you, you know, vote for this guy who said he was going to take away your health insurance? And they'd say, well, no, he didn't say that. He said he was going to come up with a better plan. He said, you know, the premiums were going to, going to go down, that there'd be better coverage. People who are voting are listening to these candidates. You know, they are hearing President Trump say he's going to protect pre-existing conditions. And that matters. So I think like this idea that you raise Ezra about directional lying, it's really important. And I find it like very upsetting and frustrating that this is so diametrically opposed to what the actual policy positions of the party are. And, and that, you know, people are going to hear this and they are going to believe that, yes, Donald Trump is the president uh, who is going to protect pre-existing conditions. And these candidates are the candidates who are going to do those sorts of things. So uh, I think there are a couple interesting things here. Um, One is that sometimes we'll be having one of these conversations. I'll get an email saying, you know, you guys got to do more policy on the weeds. You know, this is politics. And you can't have, I mean, this is, policy is downstream from politics. And you can't have a policy conversation. You can't have elections that are sending signals that can be effectively translated into policy. And you can't have accountability for policymaking in a world where the politics is so divorced from the actual facts on the ground and where there aren't trusted arbiters who can make distinctions here. I mean, it would be great if everybody listened to the weeds and hopefully someday they will. But this is really bad. Like, this is very, very, very problematic. But I do want to back out to something because we were talking about this a minute ago when Matt was bringing up the, the history of the Republican Party. I think you have to look at the history of healthcare in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years as like, a moment of near convergence and then a really sharp divergence. And, and we're now in this divergence that has destabilized a lot of the, the particularly the Republican side of the conversation. So it isn't the case, uh, I wouldn't say, that like no part of the Republican Party ever came up with a usable plan here. There was in the 90s, and we've talked about this before on the weeds, you know, the Republican alternative to the Clinton bill. It was the first um, bill in the Senate that had an individual mandate. It had protections, if I'm not wrong, for pre-existing conditions. Um, Mitt Romney then implemented a version of that in Massachusetts. So you had this thing happening where Republicans were making an argument that the way we were going to bring down premiums was we were going to have this regulated market where you couldn't discriminate based on um, the, the health status of someone or their age or kind of other factors. 
and they all had to buy in, so they couldn't discriminate. It couldn't only be the sick people buying in and driving up premiums. And so now if everybody needed to be covered and everybody was getting covered irrespective of their health status, then you would have insurance companies competing to bring down premiums on price and on quality, right? It would become a functional market. And, like, that was the theory. You were going to bring down premiums for good insurance for anybody who needed it by creating these regulated markets. And then Democrats more or less said, fine, we'll do that theory too. Like, Barack Obama will take a version of Mitt Romney's health care plan and make that the Democrats' national plan. And so then Republicans decided to turn completely against that, like completely in every way called unconstitutional, this idea they had already had, the individual mandate, you know, <laughs> launched lawsuits to take out pre-existing conditions. I mean, every part of it they turned on. So what this has done, I think, is, is two things. One is that because this has not worked politically and it's also not really worked as policy to bring down premiums, it's pushing Democrats back towards using direct government negotiation of prices um, as their theory of how to bring down premiums, right? Their theory of how to bring down premiums is that uh, you should have Medicare for all, uh, increasingly, and Medicare should negotiate down the prices of healthcare. And, and, and no one's covered this better, Sarah, than you. On the other side, I think there's something interesting going on, which is, uh, again, so you'd mentioned like Republicans talking about bringing down premiums, that being their goal. But what they mean by that is not what most people mean. Mm-hmm. They mean like healthy people will pay less for health insurance. And if you're sick or you're older or there are other things going wrong in your risk profile, you're going to pay a lot more. Like the way they're going to bring down premiums is by making premiums for like the best risks very low, which it's just it's not what people are looking for in the market. So because it's a really unpopular position, uh, because you then get into these uh, analyses like the Republican plan will increase premiums for a 60 year old male with by 14,000 percent. Right. You, you, you'll see things like that come out. They have to lie because their position is incredibly politically untenable. But I do think it is worth noting this, like, huge divergence. Like, Democrats are much more now committed to a Medicare for all strategy than they have been in the past, in part because the convergence, like Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, like, three-legged stool approach has failed both as a political and as a policy matter. And meanwhile, Republicans have also abandoned the only set of things that ever gave them anything like a usable health care policy that they could maybe sell to a population. And so now they're, like, in this weird place where they're pushing this idea of bringing down pre premiums for healthy people, but they're pretending they have a whole other policy because like, to actually describe what they want to do to the healthcare system would be political death. And like that is a world where either Republicans want to lose elections or they have to lie. And like that is how they've gotten themselves into this mess. Like there are consequences to like painting yourself into a policy corner. Um, but it's a real problem if the way they get out of it is just by lying. I want to take a break and, and return to this theme of lying. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I think one of the most relevant issues for understanding this is a, an article that, that Robert Draper wrote way back in, in 2012 about Priorities USA and its effort to sort of work up a, a campaign against Mitt Romney. And, and what is Priorities USA? Oh, sorry. This is a, a Democratic super PAC, right? So they were supposed to blast Mitt Romney. And he said that one of the things they, they tried out was uh, they focus grouped an ad, and it was about how Mitt Romney was committed to a giant tax cut for the rich that was going to be paid for by eliminating Medicare. Um, which was true. Like, this was the black letter text of his policy plan. Huge tax cut for the rich, get rid of Medicare. They found that people didn't think Wait, that when you w- say get rid of Medicare, what do you mean? That they were going to, uh, instead of Medicare, there were going to be subsidies for people to buy private insurance, and then the value of those subsidies was going to grow much, much slower than the cost of buying health insurance. And I don't know what was supposed to happen then, but this is part of it. The, the upshot is when they focus grouped it, People did not believe it, right? They thought that was non-credible, that it sounded like Democrats were lying because there was no way Republicans held such a crazy position as that. And like you, Ezra, started this by saying confidently that that you thought people were not fooled by this stuff. But No, no, no. I, I want to be super clear. I said that in general, a lot of this works out, but like on tax cuts, but here it's not. right. It's true, right? You you look at this ad where, like, Scott Walker is talking about the members of his family who would be affected by a loss of protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And Scott Walker seems like a nice guy. And I think in particular, if I imagine myself as being from the Midwest, which I am not, and being a regular church-going Christian, which I am not, I would even more closely identify with Scott Walker's heartfelt talking about his children. And it is not believable that he would hold the Republicans' actual position. And, like, go to Europe and, like, find a right-wing member of parliament. Find a far-right member of parliament. Like, find a neo-Nazi member of parliament and try to describe to them the Republican Party's position on health care. And they will look at you like you're a crazy person. But, like, it's the Republicans who are 
the crazy people, right? Like, and like if you ignore like the Republican, if you talk to a Republican health wonk, like what they describe is even crazier. Because like what the real policy analysts on the right want is like, yes, deregulate the private insurance industry, but also eliminate the tax subsidies that make it viable, but also eliminate Medicare, but also eliminate Medicaid. Like they truly believe, right? Like they they like right now, if you are poor and you want a car, but you don't have money, you can't get a car. And like what they think is that if you're poor and you want to see the doctor, Tough luck. So I would not paint as broad a brush with like the, the I think there's more variability in the people on the on the right who are advising on. But like in policy. an affirmative sense, right? Like has there ever been a step? Because like Ezra talked about how, oh, Republicans used to, but like no, when Democrats are trying to help sick people get medical care, Republicans will grudgingly cough up alternate ways to do it. But like when Republicans have the authority to govern, they either do nothing on health care or they make it harder for Mitt sick Romney was the counterexample here. No. No. I actually I think this is a little bit of a weird alley because like I think we all agree where they are now. But like one of the things that happened was Mitt Romney actually did pass that plan. I mean he was doing it in consultation with the Democratic Congress, but he really did pass that plan. That plan, like it's super weird to go back, but that plan was part of why people like endorsed him. Um Jim DeMint, he talked about how Mitt Romney showed Jim DeMint, who founded like a lot of like the modern sort of Freedom Caucus style approach to uh, to being in Congress. He talked about how Mitt Romney showed in, in Massachusetts they could bring together people on health care when he when he endorsed him. Um, I agree. But, I mean, but when the, Mitt Romney ran for president, plans, he didn't run on doing that. Like Mitt but Romney's that's the thing. It policy collapsed. idea as a candidate was like people shouldn't get healthcare or anything. I mean, as I've said before, like it's true. It's not particular to healthcare, right? Like Republicans think poor people shouldn't get food. They think they shouldn't get housing. They think they shouldn't get anything. Like that's just their view. I'm not sure how different things we're saying here are. Like my point is that they used to have things they could sell. They're, they did not obviously pass them. Democrats co-opted the things um, and actually intended to pass them and did pass them. Republicans fled the ground and turned against everything they had at one point at least used as a shield here. Like, there's no real argument about where they sort of even were or ended up here. But, like, where they are is it's a politically untenable position Again, like unless you're willing to uh, lose a lot of elections or lie about what your position is. Well, and so this kind of like brings me to the question I think about now. Like what is the end game here? Like right now we're waiting for this federal court to decide on um, this lawsuit that could get rid of the oh protections God. for preexisting conditions. It seems – so the, the last hearing on this was months ago. There's a lot of speculation. The judge is holding it until after – the election, like, there's no way to know for sure. I mean, sure, what's he trying like, to make up his mind? I don't know on. what he's. I don't know what he's been up to for the past few months. This judge, but you know, it seems like it's not going to come till after the election. And it seems like in the hearings, he's been pretty sympathetic to the arguments of the folks who are trying to overturn the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, we have this court decision that could come out if we end up with more Republican senators, House members we could be looking at another repeal attempt. And then it's like, that's where like the whole, like the whole like Wizard of Oz facade kind of falls down because, you know, the, the plans that Republicans have historically introduced don't protect pre-existing conditions as well as the Affordable Care Act does. Um, you could have this lawsuit that actually forces the entire issue. 
I can foresee a future where this lawsuit ultimately makes it to the Supreme Court because all these ACA challenges that start off as long shots seem to make it to the Supreme Court. And Republicans could very easily be faced with a situation where they have to decide how to deal with this issue. And their historical policy positions are going to be so in conflict with their, you know, what they have been telling American voters. And then it's like, well, then what do you do? Like, well, as you said, it's an incredibly I, I think, unpopular I think, here's position. Here's what they'll do. I they'll, think this will go, I think this will go the way the other ones have. That, that has some kind of high-risk pool thing. They'll say, I mean, because they did this in, I mean, remember when they did Affordable Care Act repeal, right? First, but it was so unpopular. Like, why would you go down that path right. again? But I mean, first they said they were going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Then they wrote a bill that didn't do that. And then they just lied and said that they did. Right. So like when this guy like clearly the judge has decided to strike down the Affordable Care Act because like this was venue shopping. Right. The attorneys general, they found the nuttiest right wingiest district court judge who has struck down basically every Obama administration policy and then mostly been reversed. He obviously agrees with the Republicans about this like he does about everything else. And he's obviously holding it back because it's inconvenient for their midterm messaging because he's a fucking judge. He can read the newspaper. He knows what's going on here. He's going to release it probably like two days after the midterms, right, when there's a lot of other news coming. Donald Trump will tweet some crazy shit. Republicans will write a bill that like phases out Medicaid over the long term but also has some fig leaf high risk pool thing. Democrats will vote against it. There'll be a lot of confusing tweets and ads and things like that. And like they'll just like keep keep on muddying the waters, right? Because like something to be said is – this isn't unique to this issue, right? Like, people are mad that Donald Trump's tax plan didn't do much to help the middle class. So he's taken to just saying he's working on a middle class tax cut, like, when he isn't. And they're running ads saying that Democrats want to eliminate Medicare, like, which they don't, right? Like, they've the lesson that Republican Party politicians down the ballot have learned from Donald Trump's success is that you can just make things up and so, you should. And like that's, so th- that's what they're going for on all topics. So I think there's, a, there's another way this, plays, this can just play out. So I think the, the, still the odds-on case are this lawsuit, which will come out and will get a lot of coverage, but will not ultimately end with the Affordable Care Act getting gutted. You know, they wait for some... Um, a higher circuit court or the Supreme Court, you know, using a John Robert, you know, with John Roberts voting in the majority just doesn't end up going along with this, which has now happened a couple of times. So I think I think the 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 space Republicans are most comfortable in is all saying they support this thing and then letting someone else stop it from happening. Um, John Roberts is a, is somebody who can stop it from happening. A Senate filibuster at other times can stop it from happening. Um, if Democrats win the House, they can maybe stop some stuff from happening, right? But 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 different. But di- there are different approaches to just saying that they support the craziest version of Obamacare repeal and then nothing coming of it. What I think is interesting is what happens if Democrats win back power in 2020, right? Like thinking through that world, you know, President Bernie Sanders or President Warren or Harris or whoever with a Democratic Senate and Democratic House. I think one of the first things they're going to do is either pass some – they're going to pass some kind of Medicare for all through reconciliation, 
right? Whether that's going to be like a strong public option version of Medicare for all, or it's going to be like an actual Medicare for all, right? I mean, Sarah, you've written about how uh, about how undefined this actually is, but I think that the thing that's going to happen here is Democrats are going to move the system in both a more constitutionally defensible and more simple and more affordable direction by making it much more statist. And Republicans will be really upset about that, but there's not going to be a lot for them to do about it, which is a place I think they're pretty comfortable in. Um, You've probably had this, uh, you've both probably had this experience, but I, I talk to a lot of Republican health wonks And there's one part of them where you talk about the policy, but there's another part where you talk about the politics of it. And one thing they'll always tell you is that Republicans in Congress don't like health care. They don't want to think about it. They don't like thinking about it. They don't want to talk about it. Nobody gets into Republican Party politics because they want to think about health care. And so Republicans are very comfortable in opposition and they're not very comfortable running the system. And so, you know, I, I think that, like, we might just end up in an equilibrium where, like, intermittently Democrats make health care reforms. And in the off periods, Republicans try to attack those health care reforms or chip away at them or cut out pieces of them or repeal pieces of them. But you just end up in this weird thing where, where Democrats are slowly reforming health care and Republicans are, like, modestly rolling back their health care reforms. And, like, that's just our equilibrium because Republicans have functionally left the field as a party offering workable alternatives that either can be taken seriously or as a party offering votes that require negotiation when the other party is offering workable alternatives that can be taken seriously. And I'd say kind of going beyond, it's not just that Republicans don't like to work on health care. There's a lot of Democrats who really like working on health care. Love so you it. See, so you see like coming out of Sanders' office, like coming out of the think tank world, like there is a lot of engagement right now with, um, you know, the idea of like, how do we expand health care? How do like, what what does Medicare for all actually look like in the United States? That's kind of, you know, as Democrats are out of power, I feel like I'm seeing you know, a lot of, like, clarifying of ideas, like, certainly, like, no consensus yet, but, like, a decent amount of energy being put into, like, okay, like, what does a thing after Obamacare look like? Is much, I, I think, you know, that's a question you could have on either, you know, the Republican or Democrat side, but there's a lot more energy into figuring out, okay, like, what comes after Obamacare, which is honestly, like, a little bit weird. Like, the Democrats are the ones who who passed this and, like, could be declaring game over. But they are very actively thinking about the question of, like, well, what is what is the next step in reforming health care? Well, and the Republicans, it seems to me, when I talk to Democrats on the Hill, have, through this sort of making up of policy positions, have introduced a really destabilizing element into Democrats' thinking about this. So many Democrats won primaries not supporting Medicare for all plans because they feared political attacks on the many trillions of dollars of tax increases that they're having. And they are all facing the exact attacks that they would be facing had they supported Medicare for all. And it is making incumbent Democrats feel like there are no rules anymore and that there's no upside to caution and that if their base and activists want them to endorse a maximally ambitious single-payer plan, they might as well do it because they are going to be hit by Republicans in those terms regardless of what they say or do. I don't know how correct exactly that logic is, but it's like – it's really 
altering Democrats' thinking about this, that they feel like they're going to have to live in this Trumpy phantasmagoria, like regardless of what it is they do. So they feel much more pressure to sign on to the sort of biggest asks from anybody who's who's out there, regardless of what's going on. And in particular, it should be said also, the healthcare industry groups who often sort of um, notionally opposed uh, ACA when Republicans were doing it have not uh, exactly- ma'am, ma'am. it was ACHA. ACHA. <laughs> They haven't exactly, like, rallied to the defense of embattled moderate Democrats. Like, they have spent this fall mostly getting them their powder dry to combat progressive efforts to impose price controls. Like, that's, that's the battle industry groups are prepared to, to wage. And that itself is, like, further destabilizing the, the center on these kind of issues, right? Like, it seemed— to me, the real moment of convergence on healthcare came not actually before Affordable Care Act, but after, right? When Paul Ryan was pushing Medicare privatization and Barack Obama was trying to seek bipartisan buy-in to the Affordable Care Act, and both sides were claiming to be very concerned about the long-term budget deficit, you could sort of have imagined a synthesis arriving that was driven by shared fiscal concerns. But that's completely evaporated now, right? Like Republicans back and forth on the debt. They're just kind of making of stuff up. It's it's like really undercut, I think, like the the spine of like more centrist Democratic members. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, we should do an episode at some point on the different Democratic Medicare-ish plans out there. Because one thing I do think is interesting about this is just the range of directions this could go in. Like, you can imagine Democrats replacing Obamacare outright, or you can imagine Democrats using um, very, very strong versions of a public option. If I'm not misremembering, and, and Sarah, correct me if I am, Medicare X is a yeah. version of this. Yep, from Chris Murphy and Tim Kaine. Putting a, like a, basically a Medicare option onto the Obamacare exchanges that anybody can buy into and that um, you can be subsidized into in the way Obamacare subsidizes you. And so now, as opposed to having these like unstable um, private insurance options uh, on all these exchanges, you would, on every single one of them, have like Medicare, right? Like you could always buy into Medicare. And so that would actually be one way of doing it and one way of shoring them up and potentially shoring up their popularity. I think it's very likely you could do that to reconciliation or hell, like given the total norm breaking in this era of politics, you just get rid of the filibuster on, on day mm-hmm. one if if you could convince people like, you know, Klobuchar to do it. But I think there's like a real interesting open question about where Democrats go from here, because like Matt, as you say, it's all been completely destabilized. You know, so much of the thinking that led to Obamacare had to do with uh, the hope of getting bipartisan support, but also had to do with the idea of um, getting industry support and how protective that would be. And and then finally, the idea that if you didn't change things too much, you would get more public support. Like those were three of the key mm-hmm. political ideas that this would just be politically stronger. It would be modifiable. It would be um, popular if you didn't change people's existing arrangements too much, if you didn't piss off industry too much, and if you didn't piss off Republicans too much. And just none of that was true. And the part of it that has remained quite popular is the Medicaid expansion. And like – that is a big lesson for Democrats. And meanwhile, like Republicans have, have pioneered passing unpopular bills and just damning the consequences. So I think that 
this has really broken open. And then I think you have to give a lot of credit to, to Bernie Sanders here, who has really changed the, the discussion on Medicare for all and has shown like the power that can have as not just a, a campaign issue, but like a symbolic political issue as well. I think I think a lot of Democrats thought like you would get killed for talking about that in public. And, and Sanders showed like not only would you not, there are huge rewards to be reaped. And he like converted young voters to this. I mean, he he really changed the politics of this tremendously. So like I do think it's like a really like if Democrats get power, it's going to be a really interesting moment for healthcare policy. Well, I think one of the weird things that isn't getting much attention in all of this is like the ACA is actually finally seeming to be like doing okay. Like the markets are, you know, open enrollment is just starting and the markets are actually are just about to start and the markets are actually doing decently well. Like there hasn't been a panic about are there going to be some counties that have no insurers? Premiums are actually down a little bit over last year. But politically, like no one's really in the place to celebrate that like stability in the ACA. Like the Trump administration is going to be like, well, look what a great job we're doing at running Obamacare. Democrats aren't going to talk about like, look, Obamacare is doing great under the Trump administration. Except in New Jersey. What's up with New Jersey? Well, because, like, New Jersey got a new Democratic trifecta. They oh, passed sure. a state-level mandate. Yes. I, yeah, I mean, New I Jersey is double down. But I, I think it is interesting that the that at the moment the ACA actually seems to be, like, stabilizing an individual market. No one really wants to be like, okay, cool, mission accomplished. There's, like, no um, cleavage within either party to say, like, okay, let's leave this health care issue alone at this point. Yeah, although, I mean, you know, look— Say Democrats take the House and the Supreme Court doesn't strike the ACA down, and then Trump is sort of forced to stop advancing unpopular health care ideas, you could easily imagine him, like, running in 2020, castigating Democrats for wanting to take your Obamacare away. I really, I, I don't God. think that's coming. I also don't think he'll be forced to stop proposing. He's not proposing unpopular Obamacare ideas. Republicans are, and he, like, they'll still have the Senate. Yeah, but you know, they may I feel like the house is like where where the policy ideas come from in the Republican Party these days. The Senate is just like they're just there to confirm judges. <laughs> Sarah, why do you think Obamacare is stabilizing this year? Well, so I think we're seeing a year where premiums are down. Um there hasn't been a panic about getting insurers into the market this year as there was in the past few years. Like why are premiums down and insurers not abandoning markets? I think ins- I think it's honestly just the theory that exists and it's kind of shocking because this is the first year insurers are pricing without an individual mandate. Now, I will say if you look at and these are like a kind of like wonky thing to do, but if you look at analysis of how much lower premiums would be if we still had an individual mandate, they would be even lower. So, you know, it could be an even more stable situation. I think it's just insurers, like, got the hang of Obamacare. They've been doing it. This is year five at this point. Um, You know, the people who weren't good at it got out of the market. The people who stuck around are learning how to price. They're learning how to, like, appropriately set their premiums. They know a better sense of, like, the risk of the marketplaces. So I think it's just insurers who stuck with Obamacare, like, have a sense of this new business market they've entered into. And it's not the narrative anyone really wants to tell because, you know, Democrats want to talk about how the markets are going to collapse without the individual mandate and Republicans want to talk about how terrible it is. But it seems like they're kind of just chugging along, like, okay right now. But when you say they're okay, right, they're okay, but they're in a sort of reduced state. Right, like operating mostly for the heavily subsidized. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's definitely, I mean, yes. And, like, I think that is just the people who don't get subsidies just have not been a large population on the marketplace, and they continue 
to kind of like these people who are above the subsidy range. So if you're earning more than 400% of the poverty line, which um, I think is about like $70,000, $80,000 for an individual, you're just not getting any help purchasing premiums. It remains expensive. But the people on the flip side, you know, it's been relatively stable for the people with subsidies because their subsidies tethered to the size of their premium. That, that, that That's actually created a significant amount of stability um, for for the people who are getting the subsidies. So it's not like exactly the market that the drafters of the ACA envisioned, but it is one that I feel like is more, you know, is is relatively stable, you know, given all the tumult swirling around the Affordable Care Act. But this is the reason why Democrats are sort of moving beyond Obamacare, right? Because if— you had a marketplace that was working well for the unsubsidized customers, right? Then the, like, logical next step, right, like the dream of the Obamacare true believers would have been these marketplaces are amazing. We should try to move the mainstream population onto them, right? But if it works only for the heavily subsidized population, then, like, the majority of working-age Americans who are getting insurance from our employers, you look over there and you're like, oh, if I was on the marketplace, I'd be in really bad shape. Most of the people who currently are on the marketplace are doing okay because they're subsidized, but like it wouldn't like work for us. Yeah, no, I don't think it's like at the, I don't think anyone's looking at that and thinking, you know, I remember like John Gruber's Zeke Emanuel saying by like 2020, you know, all of us would be on the marketplaces. Like that does not seem like the path we're going <laughs> down. I think there's, happen. you know, obviously like other things driving towards Medicare for all. Um, like, you know, the fact that multiple states haven't expanded Medicaid and that, you know, states are holding up on that end. Um, that, you know, even though the marketplaces are stable in the sense they have insurers participating and the premiums are not spiking, they have really large deductibles. And, you know, the people on the marketplaces are frustrated with the size of the de- deductibles for their health insurance. So I don't think it seems like the future engine of the American health insurance system that it could, that people envisioned it possibly becoming in 2010. I also don't think it does. It is not one of those years where I'm constantly writing these stories about like, well, maybe the marketplaces are going to just like collapse this year. Uh, the the meh Obamacare marketplaces. I do think if people are interested in this, Sarah, you wrote a piece a while back. I don't remember if we headlined it, the Medicaidization of Obamacare or not, but it, but it was something that, like that. Yeah, I'll toss it They're in. Probably should come up with a better headline. We'll toss it in. <laughs> I don't think we'll we headlined it. it that. We, need, we need some clickbait. Speaking of clickbait, let's take a break and talk about Twitter. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, white paper today is called Exposure to Opposing Views on Social Media Can Increase Political Polarization, which a little bit gives away the answer of this white paper, but nevertheless, it has... Yeah, that's like bad ten, like bait. <laughs> yeah, it is like 10,000 authors, so I'm not going to read off all their names. <laughs> but so here, here's what they did, because I do think it's interesting. So there is this theory that what's happening to polarize the country is people are cocooning into the, like, social media and just media that they prefer. And that if only they had exposure to opposing views, if only they were listening to people on the other side, they would have a better sense of, like, the arguments they're making, and they would come to sort of see that they make some good points, and, you know, maybe we're not all that different after all, and and the they, w- they would moderate, right? They would come more towards the middle. So this team decided to check this out on Twitter, and, and they, they built a pretty big study. And what they functionally did was they took Democrats and Republicans who checked in on Twitter at least three times a week, and they paid them money to follow a bot that was constantly retweeting voices from the other side. And, and they're clever in how they how they did this. They they had the bot follow voices that were followed by 15 leading politicians on the other side. So these were pretty mainstream Twitter accounts that were getting that were getting pushed into your feed. So instead of only seeing the stuff on the other side, the like your compatriots retweet because it's so terrible or so crazy or so offensive or so dumb, you were actually seeing like like the stuff the other side sees. And so then they were looking like, okay, well, what what happens? Like after a month of routinely reading Twitter from the other side, like what happens to you? And so they had people take a, a test before and after where they rated their opinions on 10 different issues, like on a, on a one to seven scale from like most liberal to most conservative. And what they found at the end of that month was that for the Republicans who are now seeing liberal tweets in their feed, they got more conservative um, and the fact was big and it was statistically significant. So they, they didn't just they, they got more extreme, right? Their, their positions became like more intense. Um, and on the Democratic side, if there was any movement, it was towards becoming more liberal. The movement was not statistically significant. So it's a little bit hard to say what happened. But but if anything happened, it was that they got a little bit more liberal. What happened to nobody was that or at least what did not happen on average to, to either group is that they became more moderate. So this idea that you can moderate by just following folks on the other side appears to be wrong. What, what seems to happen is that the actual period of time the study was being done had to do, was when the tax cuts were in the news. So it's like you're seeing all these, say, Republican, you're a Democrat, you're seeing all these Republicans talk about how tax cuts are great. And you're like thinking they're like, no, there are all these reasons why they're bad. And maybe you're even looking for more information why they're bad. And so you end up with a more liberal position on tax cuts than you even started with. So 
This study, I think, is important because I think it's a real problem for the echo chamber theory of polarization, which I think is pretty dominant. The idea that if you just got people to read more um, like opposing views, they would become more moderate. It just doesn't appear to be true. I mean, one thing I'm curious, you wrote about this, like, how do you think about Twitter as the instrument they're using here in terms of, you know, how people are being, because I can imagine very different versions of this, like talking to people in person, reading news articles. I'm curious how you think about like the Twitter instrument, which kind of jumps out at me at the, in this study. I talked to Christopher Bale, who he's at Duke University's uh, head of their polarization lab and one of the lead authors on the study. We were talking about this and he said, look, like, I would like to see this study replicated across many different mediums. We can't generalize from what was happening on Twitter to, to everywhere. Um, you know, there, there's a whole set of theories called intergroup contact theory, which suggests, to, to your point a second ago, Sarah, that like me, sitting down and meeting in person, it really can moderate you. But But in terms of how people are consuming news, like what they might actually really do, I think that Twitter is not that bad of a stand-in for Facebook, not that bad of a stand-in for cable news, not that bad of, of a stand-in for sort of opinionate, a lot of different kinds of opinionated media. And so the results are reasonably likely to hold. Um, we also know from a lot of psychological or political psychology research that this effect of giving people information they disagree with often mm-hmm. can have some level of backfire effect. Like going all the way back, they're very early uh, research studies out of Stanford that what they would do is give um, undergraduates studies that showed, you know, it was either making an argument for or against the death penalty. And like when the undergraduates agreed with the argument, they accepted it very easily. And when they disagreed with it, they spent a lot of time thinking about why it was wrong. So this thing where reading things we don't agree with quickly activates a um, like a like a counter arguing tendency in our own heads that that's been proven for a long time. The other point I'd make on this is that I think there's a really big difference between writing or talking or whatever for persuasion and writing or talking for your own side. And one of the things that I think is true on Twitter and true in a lot of spaces just in the medium or generally as it does balkanize is that recently few people are writing or or talking for persuasion. They're they're not they're not sitting there thinking like my intended audience here is somebody who disagrees with me but is open to being pulled over to my side. Like my intended audience or the audience I'm thinking about agrees with me. And so like what they want is content tuned towards that agreement or even just like whether or not you think about it in terms of what they want, like that's what you're giving them. And so it's like, I think there's some persuasive people out there. Like I think like Ross Douthat in the New York Times is engaged in a persuasive project where his intended audience is a liberal audience who he's trying to get them to agree with him a little bit. But very little in political media is like that. Like everything is talking to your own side. And my guess is that when you expose people to something that is talking to, like when you expose people to non-persuasive content from the other side, it polarizes them more. Maybe if you expose them to persuasive content from the other side, it would polarize them less. But there's just not enough of a business model in that for people to be doing it at any high scale. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me about this is that you know, if you if you don't think about social media, right, if you think about, like, the most sort of highbrow communications channels, that if you listen to politicians, if you listen to the good politicians, right, to, like, Marco Rubio and Amy Klobuchar talking about the issues, they, I think, both sound pretty persuasive to people on the other side. And that's why they both win landslide reelections in swingy states, because they're good at politics. But part of them being good at politics is like genuinely masking like 
what the positions of their respective ideological coalitions are. And like if you read like Michael Cannon's stuff on healthcare, it is much less persuasive than anything a Republican Party politician would say because it's like legitimately much more extreme, right? And if you listen to like real left-wingers like in their good articles, not just like bad tweets, but like really like laying out what they think, it's not like the American healthcare sector should be slightly more regulated. It's the American welfare state should be tripled in size, right, like along the lines of Sweden's. And I don't know to what extent that means like the politicians are faking or or whatever, but there's an incentive in practical politics to at least try to kind of grind down the soft edges of your worldview. But when you get like into what other people are doing, you you do gain better understanding. But I, I know there's like a, a sort of a meme out there on the internet of what people call the ideological Turing test, that like instead of caricaturing your opponent's views, you should be able to like really emulate them to show that you really understand them. And to me, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like highly informed people have much more extreme views than like muddling apolitical people. And so like if you pay attention to like really smart, really well-informed people on the other side and try to really understand where they're coming from, what you learn is that they're coming from a deeply insane place. Whereas if you just talk to like some regular folks who, you know, they like guns and they vote for Republicans, like they're often like super sensible, normal people, just like normal people of all stripes who don't have very extreme views on politics. But like people who work on politics professionally, on policy, like they have very out there opinions. I don't think this is quite right, actually, in in this way. So this is a really good study from a couple years back by David Brookman, Brockman, but it's spelled like Brookman. (laughs) He's a political scientist at Stanford. And he's talking about um, how polling gets what moderate voters are wrong. And one of the things he shows in there, and this goes a little bit to your point, Matt, and it's a way in which I'd push back on it, is that ideological people are way more consistent in their opinions. So, like, if you look like a like a Democratic Party operative, they're going to be pro-choice and also feel global warming is a really big problem and also have liberal views on healthcare and also have liberal views on capital gains taxation and also and also and also right. and the reverse for for a Republican. But if you look at individual vote, like normal voters, like not very highly involved voters, they're way more mixed and often much more extreme, but they end up seeming moderate because what will happen is that when they're given like a like a test of where they fall, they fall just all over the map and it averages out to like a three on a one to seven scale. So, you know, one of the things he shows is that on immigration, for instance, this was a couple of years ago, this is pre-Trump, um, but he said, you know, when you look at what the parties are doing, you know, they're within a certain boundary on immigration. But when you like talk to voters, like a lot of voters believe all immigrants should be like all undocumented immigrants should be deported or some have like a, a full open border thing. Like when you look at like marijuana legalization, a lot of voters think it should be completely legal everywhere in the country, which is increasingly, you know, was a little bit more of an unusual opinion then, but but is still quite outside where most politicians are. And so I think one of the interesting things about voters is that they're often they're often very extreme. They're they're not like I mean whether you want to call it common sense or not. I think that's an open question. I think sometimes it does feel like common sense if you like have a, a view on something to just like go all the way to the the edge on it. But you do get into this funny place where 
ideologues are more consistent and often they have their edges sanded off for the exact reason you describe because like they have consciously or unconsciously or just by buying into like what their party is doing consciously uh come up with something that is like a sellable agenda whereas like if you talk to your uncle or you just talk to like just people which you know happens all the time like i will hear when i'm just like chatting with people about politics completely out of like the mainstream ideas like totally wild ideas because, like, they're not bound by, like, can this get through Congress? And they're not really bound by, like, what are the parties saying on it? They're just like, eh, like, I think I think marijuana is fine. Or, like, I, I don't understand why we have any people who are here illegally in this country or, you know, whatever it might be. And so, I don't know. I, I always think that's, like, an interesting piece of it. And it's one way in which I always thought – I wrote this piece back during the campaign, but in which Donald Trump was sort of, like, a real moderate voter that when – like, putting aside what he's actually done since, when he just talked – he had a kind of like slightly random assortment of views, many of which were extremely far out there. But like, like they went in all directions, right? He wanted to negotiate down drug prices and also build a wall between us and Mexico, <laughs> like, and also not let any Muslims come into the country, but also maybe hedge funders should take a tax increase. Like there was a lot going on in there. Eventually, like he's just sanded down and, and like has like a xenophobic version of a Republican agenda. But like when you just hear him talk, like he's just like voters and that he's got like a lot of ideas going a lot of different directions. And some of them are pretty, pretty far out of what the political system is willing to consider. So I think one of the things that's kind of like appealing about the echo chamber theory of polarization is this idea. Yeah, you know, I think it's twofold that, you know, that we understand what the problem is and that there's a clear solution offered by it. Like the problem is we just don't talk to each other enough and it's, you know, kind of almost like a warmer, fuzzier solution where like, oh, the thing we need to do is just expose ourselves to viewpoints that are different from ours. And, you know, if we do that, then things will improve. I'm curious, like Ezra, like what do you take from this about, you know, like what we like what we do around polarization like if you if you have this research coming out then it falls into a body of research about how when we're exposed to things that don't fit in with our views they polarize us even more sharply like like where do you go from there i so i'm writing a book that is very related to this <laughs> yeah. and right now my view is that i i've been looking and if anybody knows of something please email me um i have not seen even one plausible, scalable idea for reducing polarization in the aggregate. Like, I don't think we know how to do it. And not only that, like, I think polarization feeds on itself. I and mean, this is a longer conversation for another weeds, but as things polarize, things polarize even more. Like, the incentives keep building on themselves. It's a flywheel. Um, you know, like, as the audience polarizes, like, the politicians who support become more polarized. Like, as persuasive media goes down, right, and and sort of, like, talking to your side media goes up, like, the, the, the groups pull apart. And so what they want is further apart. Like, on and on and on and on down the line, there's, like, once you get the thing going, once you get the engine going, it has a tendency to go in one direction. And people don't really know how to reverse it. There's, like, not a good approach to reversing it. You know, you can come up with things that would make things better rather than worse, right? Leadership, like, it would be good if our president was not constantly trying to make polarization worse. But I think Barack Obama was a president who, like, really did have an intention as a human being to make polarization in this country better, not worse, and certainly got worse under him, not better. Um, Donald Trump is somebody who wants to make it worse, not better. And sure enough, it's getting worse, not better. But leadership, it, it can only do so much. I don't think we have good answers here. Um, I'm not even sure if there are answers here. Like, I've, I think disruptive events, you know, you could imagine if we ended up in, and like, God forbid, but like in a war with China, 
you know, like a huge kind of conflict that that might change the nature of American identity. Um, you know, sort of like 9-11 reduced polarization for a period of time, but then it like came right back. So you can like postulate things here, but there isn't a plan that makes like even a little bit of sense. Like right now, like I think it's more promising to try to make the political system work better amidst polarization because like right now polarization really scrambles the circuits of the American political system rather than trying to think about how to get polarization to go down. I do just want to note one other piece of the study, though. Again, this is one study, and it's only on Twitter, and, and, and so take it for what it is. But it is interesting that the effect was much stronger to the point of being significant among Republicans and not among Democrats. And this joins, I've been looking at some research around cable news uh, where it looks like Fox News really does convert people to vote for Republicans when they start watching it, but MSNBC doesn't at all. The degree to which exposing people on the left or like kind of center left to conservative views, I they, they seem to either have like less of a backfire reaction and sometimes like more of an open reaction to it than the reverse. I, I haven't quite seen enough evidence on this to be sure it is like a real thing and not an artifact of a couple of studies, but it is suggestively interesting. All right. We should do some whole podcasts on this, you know, institutional solutions, uh, psychological ones, talk about Fox News, uh, a number of things. But uh, for now, I think we better wrap this up. Um, thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have any more intriguing studies on this or secret information about Donald Trump's pre-existing healthcare plans, uh, please share it in the Weeds Facebook group. One thing I'll, I'll add here, too, on the Ezra Klein show this week, I have Mark Sanford, um, speaking of polarization, who's a uh, very conservative congressman who lost a primary for uh, attacking Donald Trump. Doesn't love Donald Trump enough. Very much. And it's a pretty interesting conversation about the ways in which being like a Republican and being a conservative and being a Trumpist sort of diverged and like what happened if you ended up on the wrong side of it and I think it'll be pretty interesting to Weeds listeners um, I also want to note that Vox is looking for an EP of audio who would be working closely with the Weeds working closely with me on the Ezra Klein show and also helping drive our, our podcasting strategy in general and you can go to VoxMedia.com that's VoxMedia.com and look under our careers tab for that EP of audio job and last but not least in podcast news the impact is coming back oh, on Friday so, oh, whoa. 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 Yeah. That's so, exciting. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah. I think we're going to we're gonna talk about some things from our first episodes that are dropping on Friday, November 2nd, next week on The Weeds. So listen, and, and you'll get a bit of a preview, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it on next Tuesday, Weeds. Fantastic. Brace okay. for impact. Brace for impact. Brace for impact. But The Weeds will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.